It's never dull, this world of ours, and with the evolving technology, it becomes simpler and simpler to get the message or the messages across around the world and back over and over in a nanosecond. Taking advantage of our times, I'm Michael Jackson, and most pleased you found me. When a multi-multi-billionaire named Michael Bloomberg, the marvelously successful mayor of the great city of New York, announced a short while ago that he was formally leaving the Republican Party to become an independent, it would appear that he sent some shivers through the talking heads, the pundits, the fundraisers, the candidates, both Democrat and Republican parties alike, and many others. It is, yes, extremely unlikely that a third-party candidate would stand a chance in the forthcoming presidential race. That need not deter Mr. Bloomberg should he decide for sure to enter the fray. It would, again, be an unlikely eventuality, but certainly not an impossible waste of time. No, it's becoming more and more a possibility with the passage of time. And with the dozens of candidates from two parties failing to inspire the electorate or failing to sort of stand out from the herd, as yet, he might stand out with an experienced resume and a track record of success. Just look at the economy of Manhattan and all the boroughs. Did you ever think that you would live to see New York, New York as one of the safest places in America? And it is. And even the most recent poll shows a broad disparity in popularity. Bloomberg is far more popular and loved as mayor than was Rudy Giuliani. But no former mayor of New York has ever made it to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, it could be that we'd have three New Yorkers seeking the top spot. Clinton, Giuliani, and Bloomberg. Again, no third-party candidate for the presidency has ever won the White House. But these are different times calling perhaps for, who knows, uh, maybe a, a short, divorced, twice-married Jewish businessman. Look at the way in which Michael Bloomberg has governed as chief executive of the Empire State. It's been nonpartisan, no-nonsense, pragmatic, results-oriented politics. In the statement that accompanied his announced severance from the GOP, he made it clear that his hope was to bring his brand of no-nonsense, non-partisan, and results-oriented politics to the national scene. He knows well that any successful elected executive, results are more important than partisan battles, and the good idea should take precedence over rigid adherence to any particular political ideology. If he's starting to make some sense to you, be ready for a lot more thought-provoking comment from the possible soon-to-be candidate. But then, he doesn't need to announce his intent until after the first primaries in February of next year. What's he worth? Some say $4 billion, others up to $15 billion. And he's willing to spend much of it, so we're told, and he knows how to spend money and to spread ideas. In his current job, mayor of New York, he is a technical lame duck, fewer than 900 days to go in office. He's a winner. He's not accustomed to failure. Here's a line of the mayor from a speech on the same stage where he appeared with Governor Schwarzenegger. He said, the politics of partisanship and the resulting inaction and excuses have paralyzed decision-making. He added, we can turn around our wrong-headed course if we start basing our actions on ideas and shared values without regard to party. Would you give such a man a chance? Iraq. It would now appear that we are arming both sides in a civil war. The Pentagon is arming and training Sunnis, the self-same troops who once fought against us. We are preparing them to wage warfare against Al-Qaeda in Ambar province. We are stuck in the middle, well-intended, 
a further sign of the futility and cost of seeking military solutions to what is undoubtedly the Iraqi quagmire. From all that's been learned in the recent past, it is now accepted, apparently, that we are planning on keeping a post-occupation force of up to 40,000 troops in Iraq, almost forever, in some ways emulating our presence of over half a century in Korea. Maybe a new president would stop the Bush approach. We are such a vast and significant party to all that is occurring in Iraq that we may soon be unable to broker a troop withdrawal, and it appears to make ever more sense to have the United Nations broker the deals. If we plan on an orderly withdrawal and an end to the broiling conflicts there, then the only world body capable of taking the lead is the United Nations. They aren't perfect, but it's hardly likely that with our multi-layered involvement in Iraq, we'd have the political credibility needed for the negotiations. Dr. Kissinger thinks otherwise. He and the authors of the Iraq study believe we can do it alone, I wonder. Recently, a gathering of Hispanic journalists asked Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger how Hispanic students can improve their academic performance. His answer? You've got to turn off the Spanish television set. Immediately, some critics jumped on the issue as being ethnically insensitive. I doubt it. I doubt he gave the comment any thought. It's simply a statement of fact, uttered in an off-the-cuff Schwarzenegger way. When challenged, the governor said, When I came to this country, I very rarely spoke German to anyone. That, he said, was how he immersed himself in and learned English. The sooner immigrants can learn the language, the easier it is, or should be, to assimilate and succeed in this society. He didn't proclaim that the students should forget Spanish. Not at all. I think that what he was getting at was simply that it's complicated to learn English when students are bombarded with so much Spanish media. If I were Hispanic, I'd insist that my children speak their original native tongue, at the same time immersing themselves in the English language. Sometimes our governor can be a bit clumsy with his comments, but on this issue, the issue of the immersion process, the fellow is absolutely right, and he knows from experience. A few days ago, the House approved a measure to fix flaws in the system of background checks for gun buyers. Failings that frankly permitted the young killer at Virginia Tech to acquire handguns easily and legally, despite a background of mental health problems. He should surely, under no circumstances, have been qualified to purchase and possess guns. The Senate will most likely follow suit. We are on the way to fixing an obvious flaw in the law enforcement system as a direct response to the massacre in Virginia. Where guns and ammo are concerned, if the NRA is for it, it'll most likely pass. If they are in opposition, there's very little likelihood of legislation passing. This time, the National Rifle Association joined with the Democrats on the Hill. But that's only half the story. The other turns out to be a gift, described by the New York Times as a pernicious gift to the gun lobby. It's known as the Tiot Amendment, after a representative named Todd Tiot of Kansas, it limits the ability of federal officials to release data showing the path from the manufacturer to retail purchase of a gun, a gun that was recovered in a crime. Supporters of the Tiat Amendment are simply making it tougher for police and communities to learn more about how a gun goes from manufacture to use in a crime. I'd love 
the NRA leadership and supporters of the amendment to explain their logic in helping a handful of dealers who are responsible for selling a majority of the guns used in crime. Mayor Bloomberg of New York doesn't desire to support shady gun dealers, so he will not be helped in possibly seeking higher office. And the Speaker of the House, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, has said that she too will oppose the Tiot Amendment. Overall, it's another example of what appears to be the difficulty that the gun lobby has in drawing a line between the right to bear arms and using them in a crime and selling them to criminals. Guns do kill people. What should candidates for the presidency know? Obviously, a basic understanding of all major foreign policy issues, and then, once in office, to know how to assemble the major foreign policy advisors to determine options and improve his understanding of situations as they evolve. Watching debates, reading think pieces and papers, listening to candidates' debate, it would appear that we're only going to see and hear the oft-repeated challenges about the Middle East. Reading through some work by a man named Clinton Whitehurst, a senior fellow at the Strom Thurmond Institute, I came across some questions that should be responded to. I doubt whether our incumbent president would have an answer to any of them, but let's try a few. Question, Mr. President or future president, if North Korea reneges on its promise to give up its nuclear weapons program, should the U.S. encourage Japan to develop nuclear weapons? How would they answer to this? What should be America's policy toward India, a nation with the second largest population in the world, a fast-growing economy, and a military with an increasing capability, remembering the country's continuing border dispute with Pakistan, our ally in the fight against the Taliban? How about, what do we do if Russia threatens Poland for allowing a potential American anti-ballistic missile defense system on their territory? And as Mr. Whitehurst asks, how about this? What's your position with respect to the United States establishing air bases and stationing personnel in Tajikistan? And why do we want them there anyway? And if there's still time, try this one. How should the United States maintain a balance of power in East Asia? How should we respond to China if it tests another anti-satellite weapon? How would we respond to a Chinese military action against Taiwan? In part, these are questions, and many more, that necessitate the media be as challenging as possible without trying to embarrass the mere mortals seeking the almost superhuman job. Will the next president continue the embargo on Cuba? Will the United States continue to spend billions fighting the drug trade in Afghanistan and the drug wars of Colombia? Just a reminder, uh, I'm Michael Jackson, who for something like 40 years in L.A. hosted a daily radio show and TV programs that tackled the equivalent of these issues, meeting with some of the most fascinating, brightest, corrupt, and challenging of experts on all these issues and many more. I suppose men have always known this, but apparently the government needed to know for sure. Headlines put it bluntly. Survey. Men play the field more. Subheading, 29% report having at least 15 sexual partners. I suppose it's all in how one interpolates the facts and figures, but frankly, do you know any fellows currently meeting up with 15 sexual partners? The federal government says that it has authoritative statistics documenting that men are far more likely to, um, to, uh, to play the field than women. They've conducted a nationwide survey, all very scientific, using high-tech methods to solicit candid answers 
on sexual activity. Here's one of the confusing parts, and perhaps you can explain. They found that 29% of American men have 15 or more female partners in a lifetime, and only 9% of women report having sex with 15 or more men. That's 29 to 9. Doesn't that mean that a few women must be awfully busy satisfying those 29% of men? That's, um, that's why I've failed math. I wish they'd have asked me, because I'd have lied. It's nobody else's ruddy business. The Brits are almost famous for not telling the truth when they leave the polling booth at an election. They do not believe that their choice is anybody else's business. We still hear from conservatives that liberals control the media. That is truly junk. And when it comes to the ever-popular world of talk radio, the most recent findings by the groups The Free Press and the Center for American Progress, they produced a report on talk radio that is somewhat scary. They've titled their study, The Structural Imbalance of Political Talk Radio. Their findings include, of the 257 news talk stations run by the top five commercial station owners, 91% of the total weekday talk radio programming is conservative. 9% is progressive. There are, at last count, 10,506 licensed commercial radio stations. The stations, of course, are using public airways. Do you really believe that the owners are serving the public interest or that they give a damn? I don't. Did you ever expect that you would live to see the day where the most expensive city in which to live would be Moscow, Russia? The priciest cities in the world based on the cost of items like housing, transportation, food, clothing, household goods and entertainment are somewhat surprising. Following Moscow, London, then Seoul, South Korea, Tokyo, Osaka, Japan, Zurich, Switzerland, and Oslo, Norway. You dropped to number 15 before hitting the list and an American city. New York is number 15, and then way down to number 42 for Los Angeles. The high-rent districts, really high. How do the Moscovites, how do the Londoners afford to live in their own cities with their incomes? Now let's talk about our Vice President Dick Cheney. The Vice President can't unilaterally decide that he is his own branch of government, but he surely is trying it. He argues his office is exempt from classified data protocol. Is the Vice President Dick Cheney's office an executive branch agency, or is it a Washington hybrid that works for both the executive and the legislative branches of the U.S. government? Dick Cheney, where is he? What does he do? How important is he to the presidency of George W. Bush? How does he view himself? Cheney, I'll wager, sees himself as that fourth branch of government, one that enjoys all the authority of the presidency, but unbound by its rules. The Veep rejects mandatory inspections required of all federal offices to make sure that they are properly protecting top-secret documents. That doesn't make sense and defies the basic standards of good government. He even tried to abolish the whole unit whose purpose it is to conduct such investigations. Cheney's argument being that he needn't comply because he's not a member of the executive branch. This man has shredded American privacy rights in the name of national security. His methods include warrantless wiretaps, email and postal mail snooping, monitoring library withdrawals, the buying habits of millions of Americans, and it goes on. For six years, he's operated his office in amazing secrecy. As the LA Times headlined a fine editorial on the subject, no veep is an island. 
Cheney has been instrumental in eroding privacy rights for all Americans. Oh, except himself. I wonder if they'll impeach him. I'm Michael Jackson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.